0: Welcome to the Save What You Love podcast. I'm Mark Titus. Well, it's been a hot little minute or two, and I need to dive into some housekeeping with you briefly. First off, I'm sorry for the long lag here. It became clear to me earlier this year that our weekly episode release wasn't going to be tenable. So if you're hearing this now, I'm deeply grateful for you hanging in there with me. Here's what's been going on. I'm neck deep in filming the final film in my Salmon Love trilogy, and I'm calling it The Turn. The Turn refers to that moment in time when wild salmon know it's time to turn and come home, kind of almost magically, mystically. It also refers to us as a species. Are we at a point where we're going to turn into a way of living with the natural rhythm of the world, as opposed to just taking what we want and leaving it for dead, like we've been doing for the last 250 years? Or are we going to end up extinct like other creatures out there that we have been running rush shot over for so long now? So it's a hopeful little piece. It actually is. And um, it's beautiful, and I'm really grateful to be working on it right now. So that's taken up a bunch of time. And over at Ava's Wild, together with my new partner, Matt Surf, we've been cooking up a whole lot of content for a media platform to feature the best of our bioregion here in Salmon Country which leads me to the road ahead for this podcast. There are so many terrific voices out there I can't wait to share conversation with and bring to you, and we're going to do just that. To keep bringing this content to you regularly, once we turn the corner into 2023, we're moving into a subscriber system based on Sam Harris's great model with his Making Sense podcast. Still completely commercial-free, but there will be two versions of the show, One full-length show for paid subscribers and the other, still commercial-free version, will end with 30 minutes left in the show. Here's the kicker. Money should not and will not be a barrier to accessing our storytelling. Anyone who can't afford a subscription need only email me, and you'll receive a pass for a whole year of the podcast, no questions asked. This is really about getting real and supporting this work sustainably and keeping it coming to you, And that's where the subscriber membership will come in. But again, no one will be left out. Much more on all of this soon. Okay, speaking of paying for stuff, we're also going full throttle on a funding round for Ava's Wild. We're using the crowdfunding platform WeFunder to offer investment in our public benefit corporation. We're on our way toward raising all the funds necessary to get the company to financial prosperity a year from now and pay for all of the production, post-production, and a 50-city tour of the turn when it's ready to roll, likely in late 2024. So, to make a bona fide investment in the work we're doing over at Ava's Wild, which encompasses all of this storytelling, by the way, just head on over to our website at avaswild.com. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com. There's a link right on the front page to invest. Okay. So, on to the main course. Today on the show, I have the privilege of speaking with Tom Colicchio. Tom was a founder of Bravo's wildly popular Top Chef reality show. He's also the chef and owner of Crafted Hospitality, which currently includes New York's Craft, Temple Court, and Velada restaurants, Long Island's Small Batch, Craft Los Angeles, and Heritage Steak and Craft Steak in Las Vegas, and also Witchcraft, a premier sandwich and salad joint in New York. Born in Elizabeth, New Jersey, Tom made his New York cooking debut at New York restaurants The Quilted Giraffe, Gotham Bar and Grill, and Gramercy Tavern before opening Kraft in 2001. In an effort to broaden his longstanding activism around food issues, Tom served as an executive producer to his wife, Lori Silverbush's 2013 documentary, A Place at the Table, about the underlying causes of hunger in the United States. He's been a mainstay in our nation's capital in the years since. Tom has established himself as the leading citizen chef advocating for a food system that values access, affordability, and nutrition over corporate interests. In 2020, Tom took this to the airwaves with a podcast of his own called Citizen Chef, which features conversations with lawmakers, journalists, and food producers and connects the dots of how our food system really works. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, Tom co-founded the Independent Restaurant Coalition and was instrumental in the passage of the American Rescue Act. Tom lives in Brooklyn with his wife, Lori, and their three sons. When he's not in the kitchen, he can be found tending to his garden on the North Fork of Long Island, enjoying a day of fishing, which he does a lot, I've noticed on his Instagram, or playing guitar. Okay, final note here today. I'm thrilled to be partnering on content and inspiration with the support of the Magic Canoe, another terrific storytelling vehicle here in Salmon Nation. Head over to magiccanoe.org to learn more. And once again, to make an investment in wild salmon through the work we're doing with Ava's Wild, head on over to avaswild.com and click the investment button to get started. That's simply the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com, and you're off and running. Thank you once again for hanging with me all this time, including this incredibly lengthy intro today. I'm happy to be back and so very happy to report more storytelling coming your way very, very soon. Enjoy today's show. How do you say? down, how do you say what you love, Sometimes you're getting tall. chef Tom Calicchio, where are you joining us from today, welcome,
1: uh, hey how you doing, I am in Mattatuck, New York, so uh, it's the North Fork of Long Island, it's about uh, 80 miles outside of Manhattan, beautiful, and how's the fishing? Fishing's been okay. It's been windy the last couple of days, so I haven't been out, but I'm going out uh, tomorrow. Uh,
0: what, what's the story? What's the plan out there? How do, you, how do you fish out on the East Coast for our West Coast listeners here?
1: Well, there's a lot of different things you can do. You can fish inshore right now, uh, bottom fish for sea bass and fluke. Um, uh, you can fish for striped bass. Um, there's been a run of cobia uh, near shore, which is pretty cool. because We typically don't see them. Um, I haven't gotten into them yet. Um, and, uh, offshore, um, there's tuna, let's say a bluefin tuna. That's kind of near and offshore yellowfin tuna, anywhere from 30, you know, they actually come in, uh, this time of year and they're on near shore, which is, you know, 40 miles out. Um, and then out the canyons, um, there's a uh, big eye tuna. That's all, Mostly in the canyons. And you can get white marlin, blue marlin. Um uh we got a wahoo last week, which was pretty cool. Wow. Um,
0: cool. so yeah, so we get a lot of different uh a lot of different opportunities. Well, I know that fishing is tied up in your life story and how you got here, and that's exactly what I'm gonna ask you about next. Uh on this show, we always give everybody the chance to tell your life story. How how did you come into this work that you do? Which work? <laughs> <laughs> I wear a lot of different hats. Uh, you know, there's the chef
1: work, there's the TV work, there's the advocacy work, there's uh, the parenting work. There's a lot of a lot of different, a lot of different balls in the air. Um, sure enough, podcasting. Sure enough. Um, yes. But um, if we're talking about fishing, um, <laughs> I I, uh, yeah. I started fishing with my grandfather when I was about five, and uh, you know, when I say fishing, it was mostly crabbing and clamming, mm. and Um, A little bit of fishing, but mostly crabbing and clamming. We had a small little boat, and um, I had two jobs. Uh, This is probably what led me to to cooking as well. I had two jobs when going fishing. One was from a very young age, they put a knife in my hand, and I had to fillet all the fish and take care of all the crabs and the clams and make sure it got to my my grandmother and my mother so they can prepare them. Um, And my second job was to keep my grandfather awake on the ride home. (laughs) <laughs> uh, now this is the 70s so there were no seat belts, oh, and God. i was in the front seat and uh, i would have to keep an eye on him and if i saw him starting to nod out i would have to give him a nudge and he would he would always always say the same thing i'm not sleeping i'm just resting my eyes and uh but that was that was my job and um you know i remember those meals that we that we cooked um because they were these big not, not really elaborate they were pretty simple but but big meals because um we would um, prepare the crabs, um, uh, the normal way of steaming them. Um, these are blue, blue claw crabs, um, steaming them and then taking the shell off, taking the gills out. But then we would – most people would eat them at that point. We would put them in marinara sauce. And, you know, being Italian-American, there was always a tomato sauce of some sort, especially my families were from the south of Italy. And so we would put them into marinara sauce for about a half an hour, 45 minutes and let them cook. Um, And then we would eat the marinara sauce over linguine and then pick the crabs. Um, If we had clams, they were always steamed, garlic, white wine, lots of parsley. Um, If if we caught fish, it was typically just battered and fried. Uh, But that was a long meal because you're picking crabs and there's often... If we had a big haul, we, we had extended family and relatives come over as well. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, those, those meals and seeing our family get together, I think that's what led me to, to cook. And, um, you know, we would – it wasn't so much about the food. The food was fantastic. But also having all these people around the table for an extended period of time. And there was always conversations, you know, it started off usually about the the, the big fish or crab that got away and, um, you know, uh, always, uh, uh, family gossip, uh, sports, um, politics, but everybody, everybody was on the same page. So, um, that wasn't much of a, of a conversation. My, my dad though, was very much into, into politics. Um, and so that was, that was, um, I, you know, I remember these, these, these dinners fondly. Um, and, um, you know, I think looking back on that, that I, I think that's what led me to, to, to actually cook.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned all the hats and, and all the different work and, um, what I'm, first of all, it's such an evocative story. I love that. I, I identify with so much of that going out with my dad, uh, early on two years old, caught my first King salmon with my dad and those big meals and picking crab around the table. And, you know, you get quarter of it, it's in your mouth and the rest we would save for the meal or then freeze for later. Um, my wife and I had, uh, last summer did great opening weekend. We got 16 pounds of picked Dungeness crab. Oh, nice. Yeah. That we picked and, and froze for, you know, had a bunch of it on Christmas, but, um, you know, there, what I'm sensing is a connection, you know, this connection to food, to family, to each other. And I wonder if that is a through line into, all the hats, the work with a capital W. And, you know, what is that thing that got you into cooking and then more into delivering that to, to the world in a greater extension of this, this long table that you experienced with your family?
1: Um, you know, it, it's hard to pinpoint one thing. I mean, I was always taught to give back. Um, you know, as a chef in New York, you um, Especially as a high-profile chef, you're asked to do uh, many events, usually fundraisers. And typically, uh, our industry rallied around uh, issues of hunger. I think most of us cook for a living, and we feed people who are well-off. And I think most of us would say that we feel that that food and healthy food, nutritious food, is a right, Um, uh, Mm -hmm. just like breathing clean air and drinking clean water. And um, so I I got involved in in working for organizations like Share Our Strength, No Kid Hungry, Meals on Wheels, God Love We Deliver, New York Food Bank, uh, um, uh, City Harvest. Um, And, um, you know, I I thought I knew a bit about the subject. And then about 10 years ago, uh, my wife, uh, she's a filmmaker, she was mentoring a, a young woman and it was clear to to her that, you know, two things, she had some uh, learning disabilities and that she was often hungry. Her family was living in a shelter and, um, uh, she would come to our house for dinner and we would send food home. And we realized we were putting a bandaid on the problem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, around the same time, we also got her into a school that would meet her needs. In New York City, if the public school system can't meet the needs of the kids, you can put them into a private school setting and the city has to pay for it. And this wasn't some fancy private school, but it was a school that was geared towards teaching kids with some learning disabilities. Um, but because it wasn't part of the public school system, it didn't have a lunch program or a breakfast program. And so the two meals of the day that this kid was getting at school um she wasn't getting now and we got a, a phone call from the principal saying that she was clearly hungry mm. and um so my wife started to explore the issues of, of hunger in America and um that film led me you know gave me a platform uh um and and I you know had a platform for me on TV but gave me a a real opportunity to to um to to talk about the issue and you know go to Capitol Hill and talk about the issue and uh, so, so yeah, so, so I guess food, um, led me to that as well. And I think, you know, once you have that platform, uh, advocating for other things that you care about, like wild fisheries, um, and wild places. And I think there's always a connection, um, as well for me to, you know, I, I realized it so much lately I was listening to a podcast and I realized how much that I need to be out in the wild. And I think that's why mm-hmm. I fish. It's yeah. not so much to catch fish it's to be yep. there in those places. And so, and so food, food, I guess, is is the through line that, that goes through the whole narrative. Um, and, uh, but, uh, uh, so yeah, that's, that's, I think how, how I got there.
0: Yeah, this, first of all, I'm a hundred percent with you on being in the wild. I think obviously if, if anybody knows the work I do and the things that, uh, kind of, Fuel Me uh, was just out last week, river snorkeling up in the um, upper North Cascades to work on my new film, current film, uh, that'll be a third and final film in this trilogy, mm-hmm. After the Wild. And uh, at, at one point, I was in this river, and I'm looking down at the stones and the light play that's going on and the trout around me. And at it, it, one point, I realized I hadn't had a thought in 30 minutes right. or better. And I, I was like... Hallelujah! You know that—that's the whole point. And I like you're home. You're you're in yeah. the world. You're living in the world. You're not right. just completely focused on this. You know whatever machinations you've got in your own head. Right. Um. But you know, coming back to food and this idea, we we all every being has to consume something. So it's it's a it's a universal principle. But mm-hmm. when you look at the disparity of uh the, the issue in hunger in, in in the united states it seems so daunting and we'll come to some of the other daunting tasks but how have you got your brain around this like what can a, an average human being do to contribute to this crisis of hunger in our country
1: well it's a, it's, it's a crisis of poverty mm. right and so hunger is a symptom of poverty uh if you if you you know everybody says the food system's broken Well, no, food system working just fine the way it was intended to work. If you have money, you can plug into it. If you don't, you're going to struggle and -hmm. you're going to have to buy the cheapest food possible for your family, which is typically the most, the least nutritious food uh, that's there. And so, um, and and so, you know, there are programs and this is what we learned from the film. You know, uh, there are programs that help hungry people, um, but then there are also programs that help alleviate poverty. Like a child tax credit, like raising minimum wage, um, uh, SNAP, the, the food and nutrition assistance program, which is uh, uh, what the old food stamps used to be, the WIC program, which helps feed women's infant women women infants and children, uh, school breakfasts and lunch programs. Um, you know, during the pandemic, the childhood tax credit cut, cut childhood poverty in half, mm. and yet they want to get rid of it. And so, the average person, you know, I would say. You know, yes, it's great to volunteer at a food bank and all that stuff, and donate food. But that does that's that's that it that helps manage hunger. It's not going to end it. Um, government has the ability. Smart government has the ability to end hunger. And so, you know, if, if you really care about this issue, if this, if this, you know, to me, this should be one of those single issue, you know, voting, you know, that's going to get voters to the booth, to the polls, you know. Um, uh making sure that people are well nourished and and so why i right. say well you know yeah i mean i can say well I'm, I'm kind of a bleeding heart liberal i want to make sure people are fed all right that's that's one way of looking at it but let's look at the other let's look at, at something else that maybe we can all get behind mm-hmm. when kids show up to school hungry they're not going to learn they're going to act up they're going the send to the principal's office they're probably going to at some point just complete disconnect those are the kids that drop out typically not everyone. There's plenty of stories. I hear people now. I know someone who blah 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 and they did, you know, X. Yeah, that's that's a good story. The vast majority of those people are really slipping through the cracks. Hmm. And so if we want, you know, if we want to continue this this American dream, we need everyone in society to contribute. Right? That's the biggest thing wag wagging their fingers. So someone, they they look lazy, they don't contribute. Well, Part of that is education, right? And so if you can get an education because your bellies are full and you can go to school and you can learn and you're not distracted, that's going to help you live to your full potential. And if you live to your full potential, you actually will become a, 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 you know, a contributing member of society. And that's what we all really want. And so how do we give those legs up, you know, the Head Start programs and things like that to really make sure that these kids who no fault of their own, they're born into poverty. It's nothing that they did, Right. And how do we make sure that they get a leg up so we don't, we don't continue that, that cycle of poverty? How do you break it? And if we say, you know, most people would say that education is the key to upward mobility. Well, I would say that, you know, kids going to school hungry are not going to learn. So that's just, it's, it's as important as giving a kid a desk and, a, and books, right? And so mm-hmm.
0: that's why I think society should really care about this issue. It's brilliant to break it down. I mean, if you're hungry, you can't think straight and i mean it's true yeah. um and and i th- i think that that's kind right. of where i was going with this right this and, and also that doesn't even factor in the shame of right. being the kid who's hungry that's you right. know
1: when you're living in poverty you you know it you feel it you know. and and then you hear people wag their finger at the parents go oh you bought soda for them well soda's cheap right and all day long you have to tell your kid no no to the pair of you know sneakers that their friends have. No to going to a movie. No to buying that toy they see. No, 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 no. And then they're in the store. And they say, "Can I have a soda?" Well, that's cheap. I can say yes to that, mm. right? And so it's it's so much more complicated than um, what it appears to be. Um, you know, the idea. And m- most people who are on SNAP or food stamps are working. Uh, most people are on SNAP for, I think, an average of about four, you know, three to four months. Um, you know, it's really just a way to help people when they're going through a difficult time. Um, and so, you know, I, I uh, but yeah, there's there's a lot of reasons why people should care about this issue.
0: Well, it's, it's I'm hearing that it's taking empathy down all the way to its core. You know, it, 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 I think people want to be empathetic or they think they're empathetic, but they always compare that we always compare that with our own life experience, and if you haven't experienced that shame or that hunger or that real need, I mean that that was an incredible. I mean, you just about brought tears to my eyes. There, that's that's true. Like, right. That's so, all
1: true. And so, this is where I have hope. Here, mm. you talked about empathy, yeah, and most people can't can't you know experience that unless they live it. Now, during the pandemic, right in the, in the height of the pandemic, we saw all those cars lined up right? Lined up for miles at food banks looking to get food. Well, if you looked at those lines of cars, I saw a lot of BMWs and Mercedes in there and expensive cars. So that tells me that these were people who never in a million years thought that they would be online waiting for food. These are Mm -hmm. people that were solidly middle class, upper middle class. um, And all of a sudden, again, through no fault of their own, they found themselves out of work, completely struggling and not knowing where to turn. And so I'm hoping that, that, that lived experience will create a deeper sense of empathy when it comes time to actually look at these programs and say, you know what, I'd be willing to pay a little more in taxes to make sure that society gets a leg up.
0: Yeah, I do think you're, I think you're right. And I, I also think that uh, you're right about there's going to be before COVID and after COVID. And we don't even know yet all of the things that are going to roll out of this. Um, but I hope I, I think you're you're yeah. correct on this sense of empathy. You know, uh, it took us everybody. It didn't matter; it was indiscriminate. To it took everybody to a place they'd never been before, and I think there there can right. be some real benefits out of that. Well, looking down another little tributary tributary of this topic, there's a bill in Congress now called the Food Donation Improvement Act. Yes. What is it? What is this? And does it have a well, prayer? Considering the rampant tribalism, we're all walking through right yeah, now. Yeah, it, do, it does because it's, uh, it already has bi, bi, bipartisan
1: support. And so what's interesting is, is there already laws, um, uh, that protect, uh, people who are donating food, but only to charities, only to 501 C threes. And so if, if I'm an organization like a restaurant and I decide that I want to donate food to city harvest, I'm protected under the Emerson act, the Emerson law. um, uh, for any liabilities. Now, number one, most people, a lot of people don't know this. I, I know when I talk to a lot of people about donating food, they they like, well, I don't, I don't want to be liable. You're not liable as long as you're donating to a 501c3, but not if you're donating or giving money to an individual or not money, food to an individual. So let's look at this for a second. Jose Andreas, World Central Kitchen, right? If there's a storm barreling up the you know coast of Florida and it's bearing down on, on Florida... So there's, he starts to mobilize chefs, right? His organization, part of what they do is they mobilize chefs who are in that in that area to start feeding people, feeding the emergency workers, right? So calls will go out through the networks. Um, restaurants that that are going to probably close anyway because of the hurricanes barreling down, they stay open, they keep their staff there, and World Central Kitchen gives them money for the meals they prepare. Hmm. So that's what that's what they do. Uh, A lot of people don't, don't really know what they do. I mean, it's amazing what Hode does. I mean, they also set up feeding stations of their own, but this is what they do. Now, if I'm one of those restaurants and I'm giving food to a, uh, a first responder and they get sick, I'm liable Hmm. because that's not a 501 C three. I'm giving money to, I'm giving food to the individual. And so this new law will actually protect, uh, anyone donating food to an individual, not only to a, a charity. So it's a no-brainer. You it, don't have to raise yeah. taxes. You don't have to do anything. This is a no-brainer. This will pass.
0: Fantastic. Well, I, I mean, um, you know, the the amount of food waste, and I, I I didn't know this till fairly recently. Certainly, the last couple of years, uh, talking to guys like you and uh, our our friend Tom Douglas out here in Seattle, Ed, uh, the amount of food waste is staggering. Yeah. And uh, is there a um, now this you just mentioned World Central Kitchen and that's sort of a, a you know a reactive emergency response sort of scenario you painted there but um it, does this trickle down into everyday life now with restaurants and and other food suppliers being able well, to give away food well what's interesting is is restaurants typically don't waste a lot of food
1: mm. you know we're not the culverts we're trained to use everything you know that's part of a, of a chef's training is you know use every bit of the animal every bit of the vegetable um, you know, any kind of, uh, scraps or stuff like that goes into stocks and, you know, family meal and things like that. So, so that's not, the, but a lot of it happens in just the everyday household, uh, about, uh, you know, a quarter of the food that you purchase goes to waste. Um, a lot of it happens in the field where things are left behind. I mean, I'm, I'm gardening just before I got on this call, I'm in my garden and I have more pickles than I know what to do with right now. Mm-hmm. I already canned a bunch of them, jarred them. I have enough pickles for, for two years, um, <laughs> So, I, you know, I'll, I'll probably take them and drop them off at a, a food pantry or something. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if I couldn't do that, they would go to waste. They'd end up in the compost. I mean, so at least they're not creating methane and, you know, being buried on creating compost with them. But still, now that's just my little garden. There is so much stuff left behind in farms, especially now that our, our immigration is so screwed up that there are farms that are leaving their stuff in the field because they have no one to pick them. And so there's a lot of stuff left behind there. There's also a ton of stuff that is left behind in supermarkets. Because when supermarkets, when they put their displays out there, if there's one head or two heads of lettuce, you're going to walk right by them. You want to see a big display of lettuce and vegetables. And so a lot of stuff ends up in the garbage there. The other thing is when we sort stuff, right? Again, in the supermarket, you go to a farmer's market, you're going to see all different sizes of zucchini, right? You go to a supermarket, they're all going to be exactly six inches long, maybe, you know, inch, inch and a half in in, in circumference. And so um, uh, the stuff that doesn't make the grade when they're packing it gets wasted. So there's waste throughout the entire system. Um, You know, we waste billions of dollars worth of food. And so anything that we can do to capture that um, and, and reuse it, because it's not wasted unless it goes into a landfill. At that point, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's creating methane, which is the, the largest contributor to, to um, uh, you know... Greenhouse,
0: greenhouse gases, yep.
1: yeah. Yeah, um, and so... Um, contribute to greenhouse gases. And so, um, we, uh, so there's a lot that we can do. There's one company that I'm working with now. It's, 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 they're doing on a, on a massive scale. They have contracts with a bunch of supermarkets and so they're going and collecting the food from the supermarkets and most of this stuff is perfectly edible. I mm-hmm. mean, our motto is donate to people first. Mm-hmm. Second, now think about a farm what farmers used to do years and years ago. They used to feed that stuff to the animals, right?
0: Right.
1: So what we're doing is we're taking all that supermarket waste we put it through a digester. It comes out like this brown sludge. It's odorless and you know tastes like nothing. Mm-hmm. It gets dried, and then we pelletize it, and we're actually feeding chickens. And mm-hmm. so we have a whole brand of chickens called Do Good Chicken that is essentially carbon neutral. Wow. And so because we're taking that waste product, and again, it's perfectly good food, we're taking that, that stream that would end up in a, in, a, in a landfill and feeding chickens with it, and – um, so also we're reducing the amount of corn and soy that we're feeding chickens as well. And so it's, uh, it's just one of those brilliant things. And again, done on a massive scale. Um, uh, and so it's just one of those, one of those solutions to a big problem. That's going to, I think really, really help. And We're not, you know, our, our brand is, 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 is in stores now and, but it's a very small percentage of the chicken uh, production right now, but hopefully we'll scale it.
0: Yeah, I was just gonna ask if if uh, you know average consumer wanted to be on the lookout for this. What is what is that oh, brand? Go,
1: go to um, go to our website, uh, dogoodchicken.com, just Google do good chicken, mm-hmm. uh, bring it to the website and you can see if it's uh, local. I, I don't think it's on the on the West Coast just yet. Um,
0: but uh, we're 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 growing pretty quickly. I wanna I wanna pivot to your work as a restaurateur in just a second, but to hang with one more, because I just, man, I just am fascinated by this. Um, what's your take on factory farming here in the U.S.? I mean, we clearly, we off to eat. We've come to a place of uh, producing mass protein as cheaply as possible for the masses. Uh, what do you see us moving in the next decade, and is there an imperative to move to provide protein necessary for uh the people of this country
1: it's a tough one because you know on one hand if, if you do away with with that kind of farming the prices of protein are going to go way up mm-hmm. and that's not going to help hungry people so but on the other hand i uh i i buy from a, a food system for my restaurants outside of the mass-produced food mm-hmm. um I think it's, it's better for the health of the planet, better for the health of the whatever you're farming. Um, but I think, you know, again, the pandemic really showed us how we have to start to decentralize that food system. Right. We saw a lot of, uh, of plants that were shut down uh, really put a, a, a real damper on our food system. So I think we need to start spreading stuff out, make it less centralized. Um, you know, right now we only have really four big chicken companies and, and two, I think, big meat packers left. Um and uh, that's not good for anybody. I think that's, that's not good for prices. That's not good for the small farmer. It's not good for the small farmers either. You know, we heard these, these crazy stories. And so during the pandemic, when those slaughterhouses closed, right, when they reopened, they couldn't move pigs through them because they were too big. The animal keeps growing, right? So the animal is supposed to be, I don't know, 200 pounds. I can get these numbers wrong. Say 200 pounds. Sure. That's the size of every single one of those pigs that you raise. They have to be to go through that slaughterhouse, right? This is the packer telling the farmer, this is what you have to do. Now, all of a sudden, that slaughterhouse closes, that processing plant closes, but these animals are still being fed, and they still got to eat, and they're still growing. Now, all of a sudden, they reopen them, these pigs are 250 pounds, 300 pounds. And you know what to tell the farmer? Sorry, we can't take it. Wow. So the farmer has to euthanize the animal or try to figure something out. Um, And so, again, this is because everything is just too centralized. There's there's no flexibility at all. Um, So. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the pig farmers and other other farmers were just up in arms because they were losing the product. No fault of their own, but they had these contracts and they can't they can't
0: get around them. Do, do you see a viable path here in this country where we we can localize our food supply in a much more efficient way, um, localize re- regionalize our supply chains, and um, try to eat more locally? I know I know we all talk about that, and we all people like you and your restaurants, you, you walk that walk. But I mean, yeah. W- coming back to that, that analogy in the beginning about like, Hey, you're hungry, you're hungry and you can't afford, yeah. if you can't afford it, you can't afford it. So like, is there a viable path forward in your mind um, to, to try to do this in a way that can feed people that need it?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I think one way to do it is, is create incentives for, you know, farmers to grow more. Now You need markets, for instance. So, so let's look at this for a second. So, let's mm-hmm. just say where where I am here on on the, the, the northeast end of, of Long Island. There's a Tom. This is farm country out here. There's wineries, and uh, it used to be a, a huge uh, potato uh, growing area, cauliflower, and and broccoli. Um, but there's a lot of farms and a lot of farm stands and stuff. And I think you'd have more land that would actually uh, be used for fruits and vegetables if there were more markets now you have to rely on your farm stands and people coming out and buying from the farm stands well what if we had a regional processing plan here that would buy fruits and vegetables from Mm -hmm. farmers Mm
0: -hmm.
1: minimally process them right freeze them and then use them in the school system all right so now the farmers have a market an additional market to what they have now. So, and there's programs in the farm bill that are, are farm-to-school programs. But I think they could be more robust. But what's missing, you know, my mother ran a school cafeteria. And she was, the, you know, back when she was doing it, they actually had cooks and they were buying raw products and, and cooking them. Now it all just comes in, you know, that you put pop things in a steamer and that's it. And mm-hmm. so, um, And so, you know, the idea of getting food from a farm to a school, although it sounds good – there's no practical way for that to happen. Right. But if there was a processing, regional processing plants that could do this, when I say, you know, taking the peas, and especially school's not in session in the middle of summer when all the stuff is growing, right? So if you could just blanch the peas, freeze them, ready for school. Take the carrots, again, blanch the carrots, so peel, chop, blanch them, ready to go in the school system. Um so you can help create that regional system, but on a, again, on a, a much bigger scale. Um, I think also it's just kind of happening on its own. I think especially young people they want to know who's producing their food, the effects it has on the environment, the effects that the, the, the health of the of the, the that, that food system. Um, and so I think a lot of this is, is happening um, on its own. Uh, but you know, it could it could be incentives. I mean, for instance. You know, we've done a, a, the government has done a ton and spent a ton of money on R&D on how to create, how to grow more corn and more soy and more wheat on the same amount of acres, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they haven't really done that for fruits and vegetables. And Mm -hmm. so that kind of research and creating the, the right seeds where you can grow more on the same amount of soil, to me, that's, that's kind of key. Um, and then, you know, create, again, creating those markets, um, but uh, we we it can't. I think it's happening, and in, in, I think it will continue to happen. But it's not gonna. It's not. It's not like turning a switch and saying you know tomorrow we're gonna shut down every CAFO out there. You know, right? Uh, uh, yeah, that's not gonna happen. You know, there there are some bills. I know Cory Booker's trying to trying to outlaw CAFOs uh, by I think twenty thirty. I, I don't see. I don't see that as much chance of passing, (laughs) but, but, uh, but, but there's talk, there's a lot of talk and there's, there's clearly a move towards uh, trying to make healthy foods more accessible and more affordable. That's the real key.
0: Uh, It's bending toward hope. You know, honestly, I think um, one of the central images we're going to be looking at in the turn in this next film is is a murmuration like a murmuration of birds or a murmuration right. of salmon all turning at the same time and right. these are conversations that are happening on the west coast they're happening in the midwest they're happening on the east coast and this is hopeful um yeah. bending i'm going to i'm going to bend toward another topic here uh and and head back into the the gloom of the forgotten years of the last several years here for a moment um and i just want to ask you many many restaurants and everyone who depends on them didn't make it through COVID. How did you and and your restaurant business uh, of many restaurants survive? And what's Sunday gravy? Oh, okay. Um, So,
1: yeah, when when the pandemic hit and restaurants across the country were forced to close, um, uh, you know, we still had bills to pay. We still had fixed costs that we were paying, and people were struggling. And very, very quickly – Myself and a bunch of other chefs, we co-founded an organization called the Independent Restaurant Coalition, um, and we wanted to make sure that uh, Congress and our government understood how uh, how we were impacted by by the pandemic, and how the communities that we support and that we that we, um, that, we that we operated in were also going to be affected if we lost independent restaurants, and we successfully. Um, lobbied the government to put together a package to get to restaurants. Uh, we got twenty eight point six billion dollars, um, which sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but it was still forty billion short um, uh, than what we really needed. So there was an application process. You fill out your application, and money was granted to you. It was a grant; it wasn't a loan. And uh, when the money was all gone we were about $40 billion short of covering everyone that applied. Um, and we had a second bite at the apple and we, I think we ended up four senators short of getting another $40 billion for our industry. Um, and so that's, that's what we did. We're still working on it. We're still, it's still not dead yet. We're hoping that maybe we can get something through reconciliation, but of course our, our democratic friend Joe Manchin doesn't want to send, spend any more money on COVID related expenses or, And so he's kind of putting a damper on that, like he does so many things. Um, But, uh, you know, it's uh, it's tough for the restaurants that didn't receive money, because if you're, you know, working in the same community as a restaurant that received money, now all of a sudden they can pay workers more money. They can maybe do some renovations or something when you're kind of stuck struggling. And so restaurants are still really struggling. Um, We hear every single day from chefs and restaurateurs that are closing their doors. Um, so it's, it's been, it's been a real, you know, it's been really tough. I mean, I got through one of my restaurants received funding out of the four that I had. Um, and, um, but we did get some PPP loans that were converted into grants and that's how a lot of restaurants got by. Um, we got some idle loans, but also we were very careful about what we did and what we spent money on. I didn't build one of those outdoor spaces. Um, and we were able to uh, renegotiate some terms of our leases with our landlords. Um, I did lose one restaurant through a unscrupulous landlord who, you know, completely screwed me over. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, we, we came out of it. Okay. Um, uh, you know, the workers early on, especially early in the pandemic, the first year were, were in pretty good place because unemployment was so robust. Um, and they weren't, no one was going out spending money. Everybody was stuck home. Uh, so the workers for the most part were okay. The workers that, that maybe for whatever reason couldn't, couldn't, uh, receive unemployment. We, we helped out best we could. Um, but, uh, we, we got through it. Um, we're doing okay now. Um, you know, still concerned about another wave of, of, of the pandemic coming through in the fall. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's,
0: it's tough. Um, you mentioned you 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 had one restaurant going, or thanks to a landlord. Uh, where, just for our our audience, where where are your restaurants? What what are you what are you currently running? Well, I have Craft in New York. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: next door to Craft, we we had our our private dining room that we had just renovated before COVID hit. We actually turned that into a, an Italian trattoria called Valada. Mm. Um is the town that my father was uh, family came from. Um, my father was born here. Um, his where his parents were from. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I have a uh, small batch, which is out in uh, garden city, Long Island. And, uh, we have temple court, which is in the Beekman hotel and in the financial center downtown in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, we have craft in Los Angeles. And then, uh, we also have, uh, two restaurants and casinos in the MGM and the, and the Mirage. One is called craft steak and the other is called heritage steak. Um, and uh, we had a restaurant called um, River Park, and that's the restaurant that we lost.
0: That's right. That's where that I, I, I was there with you, it mm-hmm. seems like a million years ago, yeah. um, when the uh, the breach was coming out into right, the world. Right. Um, so another big aspect of your life, you've created this little
1: show, or you've been one of the... the well, you asked me about, 100- before, we do, before we go there, you asked me about Sunday Gravy.
0: Yeah. What, thank you so, for so being Sunday's- mindful.
1: Sunday gravy, growing up Italian-American, every Sunday we had gravy. Now, mm. gravy to, to most of the world is tomato sauce. Um, ah. We called it gravy because, and if you go look at the technical definition of gravy, it's a sauce made with meat drippings. Well, we would fry meat, my, my mother, I say we, my mother would fry meatballs and sausage and brujol, and mm. that would all go into the, into the marinara sauce. Now, once the once the, the meat goes into the marinara sauce, it becomes gravy. Uh, um, and that was served over, not pasta but macaroni. We we didn't call it pasta; it was macaroni. And that was every Sunday. Um, maybe in the summer we wouldn't have it, but every Sun, every Sunday for uh, during the, during uh, uh during the year we we would have that. And so I started doing that meal At my restaurant, Falada. So every Sunday you can come in and get Sunday gravy. No,
0: oh, dude, I'm hungry. <laughs> sounds so good. <laughs> Uh, that is a lovely tradition. Um, and are you, is that ongoing now Post No, occasionally I do it. Not every Sunday, but occasionally I still, I still do it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right on. All right. So this little show called top chef, yeah. uh, 19 seasons that that starts shoot. Yeah. We start shooting our 20th season, um, middle of August. Oh my God. Well, that, yeah. that's, that's incredibly rarefied air. How, how have you guys been able to endure and thrive in a you know super competitive <laughs> we've all got ADD um, that that's really keeping an audience for a long time with really quality work how how do you create success like that
1: you know there's there's a lot of things you know it's it's funny i was watching shark tank last night <laughs> it's just one of those things that we watch <laughs> in my house mm-hmm. and you know I was sitting there watching and i realized that these are very accomplished people on the show right mm-hmm. all of the 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 panelists and people that are spending their money and there's, there are no producers telling them what to do and what to say. Hmm. And that happens at our show too. Um, We say, we want to say, we make decisions that we're going to make. And so I think there's an authenticity that comes through because of that. Um, The producers make the show. I mean, obviously it's the, the challenges and the casting and, the way the show is lit and the way it's directed. I mean, that's all part of production and that's all incredible. And they do an amazing job with that. Um, the editors do a crazy job. I mean, we're shooting with six cameras, 16 hours a day. Uh, it takes two days to shoot an episode, and you're seeing 48 minutes. So the editing process is just amazing. And so, um, but I think because we don't sit back and say, well, this is the show and that's it. It changes all the time. Mm-hmm. We're constantly tinkering with it. We're constantly changing things. Um, uh, you know, I remember years ago when we used to, you know, eat the food. And then after that, we go to judge's table and we spend an hour talking about it. And then we bring the contestants out and talk about it again. And then we send the contestants away and we talk about it again. And then we, you know, do our business mm-hmm. where one, one, one episode we were in Chicago and we were doing a a block party. And so we were all sitting on a stoop in some brownstone on the street and we were chatting. Right. And we're all still mic'd. And so the producers hear us and they come over (laughs) and they say, can you, can you save that for, you know, for for deliberations? And we're like, well, why don't you just shoot this? Totally. And they're like, okay. And they came (laughs) over with some cameras and shot that. And that became our first deliberation, which then we turned into the mini deliberations that we have on the spot. And so that made that made it a little more um, uh, dynamic and, and you know fun in the moment. And so examples of, of like that is, is sort of our way of just constantly keeping the show fresh. The other thing that I love is we tackle social issues. Yes, you do every season. And that and the other thing that I think we did starting, I think it was the Seattle season. Mm-hmm. And I remember this: um, we had the, the parents of the final. I think there were four you know, four chefs left. We brought their parents in. Right. And I was supposed to just go by, they were having a meal together. The parents were surprising them. And, and it's just, you know, that kind of moment that that's kind of really just endearing. And, and so I had to go say hi. Well, so I go to say hi. And then I started asking questions. Like, you know, tell me about, you know, when, when your daughter, you know, told you that she wanted to become a chef, you know, she was in med you know, go to med school and she came to, how did you feel about that? What did you, what did you think? And, So you got this, this backstory going on and that became like, Oh my God, this is amazing. You know, the backstory became such an important part of the show because you want to tell someone's journey and how they got here and why they're cooking and why they do what they do. And, and that's interesting. And so incorporating that into the show was something that we we, we didn't do from season one. And so just examples of that, where we're constantly changing the show, I mean, incorporating um, last chance kitchen into the show. Um, which is our, our digital show that all the contestants that are eliminated get together. And it's kind of like Last Chef standing in the kitchen and gets back on, into the competition. So that creates a different aspect of the show. Um, and so, but again, it's all these things that we try that we, um, I think that's what's made the show great. I think also, um, especially the last. Probably seven seasons. Um, you saw a big change in the way the chefs interact with each other. They're mm-hmm. much more supportive, and I think that's what it's sort of indicative of where our industry is going. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're more supportive of each other. There is less backbiting and less less of the, what we call the reality stuff. Um, and uh, the cooking is starting to really it just gets better and better. So I, I think that's that's those are the reasons why the show is really uh, enduring and and there is really no end in sight. Love yeah. it. We just got nominated for six Emmy awards it's,
0: it's, it's quality. Yeah. You know, my, my grandfather, uh, on my mom's side was a baker in, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He immigrated from Germany and, uh, he would always tell my mom and my aunt quality, quality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's hard to replicate. I mean, it's hard to fake that, you, right. you know, you've got it or you don't. Um, right. last question is like, you just mentioned you, you, you're a droid, you, you, change and that uh enhances and strengthens the storylines and the show how much how much input do you and the other founding uh judges panelists have into that creation that creative part of the, the the show itself
1: not not a lot um you know i don't have that kind of brain to come up with those challenges i mean our producers <laughs> are so Don not do who is our, our executive producer, our showrunner, she's been on the show from day one. She started as wow. a PA, wow. right? And now she's running the show. And her and her team, they're just great at thinking of this stuff up. But what they do is so, you know, every season we're in a different city. And they go into that city and they spend a lot of time there and they find out, you know, what's really important to that city. And and that's how the challenges start. And so, um, you know, we're shooting in London this year. I think that's mm. pretty, it's known. I'm not saying anything out of turn. Can't say where the finale is, but we're shooting sure. in London. And so the city's going to play and have a, a big role in the challenges. Now, what they will do is we'll get the grid. So sort of all the challenges, in fact, we had a meeting yesterday going through the, the, all the challenges. And so we can give feedback and make comments and, and things like that. Um, but, but the actual, um, creative. That really happens with, the, with that production team. Yeah.
0: So much fun. Um, and you still, I mean, it seems like you get joy out of this. This is,
1: Oh, it's it's, it's so much fun on, on so many different levels. Number one, I get to see a lot of young chefs get to meet them that I wouldn't get to meet at all. These are, you know, I think we do a great job casting because if you look at the amount of, of chefs that have come through top chef and not the winners, just, mm-hmm there's probably 150 or so chefs that have been on our show that have multiple restaurants are winning beard awards. They're winning food and wine, best new chef. They're really, you know, contributing to, to the industry. Um, And so that's a blast to get to know them, you know, early on and see what they're doing and see these young chefs work. Um, Number two, just our production team is fantastic. Um, uh, It's like going to summer camp. I always say it's, it's like, it's like going to summer camp, you know, for six weeks that we're in production, these are your friends, these are, you're, your, you know, you're working a ton of hours, you're, you know, but it's a lot of fun and it's the same people every single season. And so it's like, you know, going and having your camp friends that you spend that time with a bunch of us play instruments and get together at night and, 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 uh, and play and sing. And, and so it's, uh, it's become something that I look forward to every year. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a blast to work with Gal and Padma and, and, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, we've really gotten to know each other and, you know some of the early seasons, trying to figure that all out, and navigating that was sometimes uh, difficult. Um, you know, there's a couple of egos in the room, and uh, including mine. And mm-hmm. uh, but we managed all through
0: that, and we all we all have a blast doing the show. Yeah. It's it's kind of a miracle. I mean, people you know people people disagree through time, yeah. especially through creative things. And yeah, I mean,
1: but you know a- we we do. But one thing we do is we respect each other. Yep, I respect Podman's opinion. People, oh, you know, she's not a trained chef, whatever. She eats out a lot. She cooks at home a lot. And she has a great palate. So I, I, I respect her. I respect Gal. I respect the guest judges that come on. And so that's that's why it works. Because when no one's sitting there going, well, you know, someone doesn't know what the hell they're talking about, and it's not about putting each other down, like you see on a lot of other shows where that's right. part of the stick. You know, this is. And the other thing is, we're like really serious about what we do. You know, we want to get it right. That's apparent. (laughs) We really want to get it right. And, you know, there's a lot of times where people will say, well, you said so-and-so. Again, six cameras shooting 16 hours a day, there's a lot of stuff that we say. Um, Mm. And there has to be a narrative and there has to be a storyline. And we also can't make a show where most cases we eat the food. We could literally sit there and go, what do you think? And we're all on the same page. Now, but that wouldn't be much of a show if we sat there and go, Oh, Johnny's going home. Yeah, Johnny's going home. Johnny's going home. <laughs> you know, Sally wins, Sally wins. Right, uh, right. We have to talk it out. We have to say things. And you know, you kind of try to be balanced, try to give some negatives and positives. Yep. And then you let the editing team figure it out from there. But when we make a decision, it's because that person made the worst dish. No questions asked. Yeah, you know, we'll we'll work it out. Um, but And whoever's going to win is because they made the best dish and that's it. All that other shit that goes on behind the scenes that everyone sees and gets attached to, Mm -hmm. didn't you see what so-and-so said? Mm -hmm. We don't see that. (laughs) We see it, you know, when we see the show, I have no idea that so-and-so got into an argument with so-and-so and and maybe decided not to buy that food. I don't care about that. I just care what they did.
0: Well, you know, I I got a little taste behind the scenes firsthand um, this last fall. Uh, uh, one of your compatriots who appeared in the wild, Mark Harmon, um, Mm -hmm. filmed an entire episode up in Bristol Bay. And that show has been on the air for 19 years. And I got to watch the behind the scenes machinations. I was, they brought me on as a producer Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's incredible. The flow, the, 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 I've never seen people turn around a scene like these folks did and, and the efficiency and, um, and I know how much went into making that episode happen. It was called great wide open. And, um, it was kind of Mark's swan song, you know, for the, for the show. And mm-hmm. it was, it was massive. The amount of work it took to just get the approval to move a company up to Alaska. And I know you guys move around all the time and yeah. it's, I guess I'm just boiling this down to congratulations. It's a, yeah. it's a huge success. Thanks. Yeah. We shot in Alaska. <laughs> Yes, we did. We shot at Juno. It was it was a blast. I I ate more king crab than I than I than I knew to do with. It was great. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Well, uh, we'll would love to see you back up there again. Which which brings me to Bristol Bay. Yeah. For the love of God, can I get you to come fishing with me?
1: I'd I'd love to. I got to figure out a way to to get up there and do it. It's you know it's. uh, Yeah, maybe maybe when my boys are a little older, we'll all, all take a trip up.
0: That um, would be super cool. Yeah, I'm trying to get them to fish more, but it's, uh, it's,
1: it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's well, not always
0: easy. It, it understood, you know, um, it's a lot going on in that age and, um, you know, Bristol Bay, this just kind of leading into our, our road home here is a wonder. I mean, it's this year, they're smashing records again, uh, highest harvest of all time, over 54 million fish harvested. All wild, wow. all regenerative. These this salmon make themselves. That's the harvest. They're expecting seventy five right. so million m- sockeyes total.
1: Right. Yeah, so, ahead. Mark, is the is the mine now completely stopped, or what's what's going on with that? Because I've I've you know
0: haven't talked to you in a while. Yeah, you bet. So um, here's where we are. We're in a hopeful moment. Um, Joe Biden made a commitment during his campaign that he would put an end to this mine, and his EPA is still considering uh, comments till September 6th. And so we've made the wild and the breach available for free for folks to watch and get their comment into the EPA and let them know that this place is a place like no other on the earth and it needs to be protected at all costs. Did did the, the mining company, did they pull out? Not, not exactly. Um, they're sort of a dormant entity right now. Um, in fact, they're, 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 uh, you may remember from the film um, and some, you know, news footage they, they've they've had sort of a supply area on site, and that right. burned. That burned in a in a tundra fire this last summer. They're they're really, you know, for all intents and purposes, on their last gasp. Right. But what what we're really concerned about is um, we we anticipate the EPA is going to do the right thing and um, use their power under the four hundred four C Clean Water Act and uh, basically put a preemptive veto on any dredge and fill. But didn't they just lose some of the power in the Supreme court ruling? Yeah. And in that, my understanding of that was that that was more specific to air quality than it was to water. Um, But um, we, we, I guess to, to summarize and, and answer your question, we, we, we expect there to be a positive outcome here, but here's the, here's the kicker. The What the EPA will do with this is particular to the 2020 submission of the Pebble project as is. If somebody were to come in and say Pebble 2.0 or some other swing in, you know what, from another country mm-hmm. or whomever, there's $500 billion worth of gold and copper in that place. And the folks are not going to go away quietly. Right. So the concern is until we get permanent protections, and there are... Uh, Senators Murkowski and Sullivan from Alaska are are in fact working on, uh, with a lot of other folks, um, a way to create a national marine fisheries area. Uh, but until such time as that happens, we're going to be at the whim of the political winds that that you know God knows are mm-hmm. always changing. So um, we're in a good spot for this moment, and we got to keep going. That's right. where we are, and so when you think about a place like Bristol Bay and obviously you've been a a wonderful vociferous champion for Bristol Bay, like what is it about this place that, that intrigues you uh, as a chef and as an activist?
1: You know, for me, again, it's about, I think I mentioned this right off the top is, is Mm -hmm. about protecting those wild places. There's so few of them left. Um, And you know, there's yes you you you, there are resources out there that we need um but there's also the enjoyment of wide open spaces that are so important you know uh going back to you know teddy roosevelt who just decided that these wild places need protection and -hmm. created the, the national park systems and and um but you know, there's 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 fewer and fewer of it, and 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 you know we have to we have to keep these places wide open. Number one, I think that people should be able to enjoy them. Number two, I think it's imperative that, um, you know, we're destroying this planet is, is so quickly. There are species that are disappearing at a, at an alarming rate. Um, we're going to make this planet inhabitable and, and there's no plan B. It's just going to Mars is ridiculous. It's, it's not going to happen in anyone's lifetime. And so we need to seriously start thinking about, um, ways to protect the, the place where we all live. Mm -hmm. And one way of doing it is keeping some of these places where, you know, they're not going to get clear cut. Um, and that species that are living there, um, whether it's, uh, a marine species, uh animal, a plant where there's some protection so we can, you know, live in a planet that isn't going to be completely
0: extinct because eventually we're going to extinguish ourselves. Yep. Um two more here as we wrap this thing up. Do, what story do you have a burning desire to tell? What or what project? Oh boy, I don't know. <laughs> I'm writing a, i am I'm I'm in the middle of a book, kind of a cookbook, kind of
1: a memoir. Mm. Um and really, you know, during the during the pandemic, I, I did a lot of Zoom classes and most of it was about 20 minutes of cooking and 40 minutes of talking and really just, you know, looking at why I do what I do, you know, the cooking part of it, how I got there. Um, knowing as a kid that I struggled with ADHD and back when I was a kid that that wasn't such a diagnosis, but my children, all three of them have been clinically diagnosed and I see a lot of the struggles that they have that I had. And, uh, you know, did that lead me to cooking because I actually found something that was easy and I was good at it. Um, so that's part of the story that I want to tell. Um, and, uh, you know, struggling with whether or not I want, you know, you get to a certain, I'll I'll be 60 this year. And, uh, you know, I was thinking of, of, uh, life after restaurants and, and how much longer I want to do this and, I'm still going to continue to do this, but trying to figure out the best way for me to continue to engage um, with my restaurants, with the food world, trying, you know, how do you stay relevant? Um, How do you, you know, create that space for the group of people that are coming up and, and, um, but still stay involved. And, um, uh, you know, I, I can't work in a kitchen 10 hours a day, let alone, you know, 14 hours a day anymore. Um, Mm it's hard to do it for six hours a day. It's, 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 uh, you know, when I opened Velada, um, we were, you know, I was, I was opening it and you saw, you know, couldn't get staff. So I was cooking for, you know, we were only open four nights a week when we first started, I was cooking four nights a week on the line and it was an open kitchen. This place looks residential. So it's a wide open kitchen. And I had a blast. But boy, after four days of that, I was beat. <laughs> and I was only working service. The funniest story I'll tell you. So we had this one young woman who was working. We hired her. She was from, she, she was from Thailand. She had only been living in the country a couple of years. And um, so I would roll in around, you know, 5 o'clock, 5.30. Station was set up. I was working the pasta station. I I would, you know, finish. And the last dish would go out and I would, you know, grab a glass of wine and go home. And, and so, uh, you know, two weeks into this, she turned to my chef and said, you know, the pasta cook, a really good guy, but why does he get to come in so late?
0: That <laughs> 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 you know, was great.
1: Uh, but, you know, I, it, it's, it's, you know, at the end of the night, your knees hurt, your back hurts, you're tired. And uh, so, so finding a way to stay creative um, yep. working with the chefs and, and um, keeping the restaurant going. I mean, that's kind of, I'm trying to figure out my place nowadays, and that's uh, that's like the next chapter. You know? That's brilliant. So that'll man. be in the book. That's what I'm well, trying look, to
0: explore. I, I forgot we're we're both Leos, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm almost exactly ten years behind you, and I'm feeling that stuff. And in fact, I mentioned the river snorkeling thing. You know, such joy, such peace. And dude, my knees yeah. like banging around in the rocks and hiking around. When's your birthday? Them, August first. Oh, oh, same as my son's. Nice, yeah, nice. And Jerry, yeah. Garce- and Jerry Garcia, and Jerry Garcia, and Jerry Garcia. And yours is the third, fifteenth, fifteenth. Okay, my wife's this is the second, and they're just packed full. Yeah. We got a whole family packed full. Yeah. of Leo's yeah. here, um, but I'm thinking the same thing. You know, in, I think in a general sense, and and that's also part of the new movie is going to be like turning it over. What's that? What's that moment when we're going to turn it over to the next generation? All right. Last question I have for you, and I'm going to turn you loose. Thank you so much uh, for, for hanging with me and us um, today. Um, you know, we're, we're so deeply divided in this country. I'm obsessed with this image of a long table. You've talked about it, sitting down with a family, sitting down with others. D- you know, some people think it's preposterous that we're ever going to get to a place of understanding with the these tribal silos that we've created in this country. But if in your mind, do we do we have a shot at that? And if so, how do we do it? I think we do. Yeah, I think we do. Uh, yeah, I, I, think we do. Um, I don't know what's going
1: to break the log jam. I, I have a feeling that at some point, you know, we're going we're, mean, to have to come to our senses at some point. And when you make mm-hmm. the other the enemy, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a problem. I mean – you know, and, and, that, and that's what's kind of what's, what's been happening. It's just this zero-sum game of like of demonizing the other side because they have a different opinion. Um, right. And so, you know, what's funny is that I spent a lot of time up on, up on the Hill and behind closed doors, they're not like that. It's when they got to go out to the press, that's when it gets like that, when they have, you mm-hmm. know, during the primary season where you got to get your base out and it just gets ugly. But behind closed mm-hmm. doors, you know, it's, men and women are, are kind of, normal They're cordial and most of them some of them aren't um but um you know what i find interesting is that after obama won right there was the autopsy that was done on the republican party they got you know beat so bad and they they lost the popular election in most of the last 10 elections whatever right and um uh eight elections and so at some point they're going to realize that, you know, it's not about gerrymandering to win and it's not about, you know, vilifying the other side to win. It's about actually creating good policy that people care about. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, I think, uh, and and maybe it's going to take, you know, Democrats winning the midterms, which is going to be tough, and Senate and, and, you know, winning the presidency again, and finally come around and go, wait a minute, maybe it's policies that we got wrong here. You know, and 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 hopefully, then there's a, a way to meet somewhere in the middle and and look at what's best for the country, as opposed to just how to stay in power. Because that's the problem right now. Is is that that's the game? Is how do you stay in power, as opposed to what's best for the country? Yep. And so, as Liz Cheney, there is nothing that policy wise that we have in common at all, all. Right? Except though, she had the decency to say. I don't care if I lose my election. I'm going to do what's right here. And Adam Kensington, right. same thing. I'm that's going right. to do what's right here. I don't care about staying in power. I really don't. Um, and maybe that's what we need
0: more of, you know. Um, Amen. Yeah. Yeah. People standing up for principle. I agree. Yeah. I yeah. think Liz Cheney and, and, frankly, Mike Pence should have statues. Uh, well, in these I don't know about Pence. Pence didn't do anything. You know, he, he did his job.
1: Right. But he he didn't, you know, listen, my problem, I I hate to to, to throw water on this one, um, but Mike Pence got a legal opinion that it was against the law what the president wanted him to do. Mm. If he had a different opinion, he may have made a different choice. And so he did his job. But, you know, I think he could have I think he could have acted a lot sooner. But anyway, he did his job yep <laughs> did. so if we're giving, did if we're giving out order. statues for people that are doing their job now, then great, give them one.
0: <laughs> okay. we'll, we'll we'll park it there for now. Last, right, cool. The last thing is the bonus round. Just whatever pops in your head, everybody does it, you're gonna love it. Let's say God knows now with climate change that could happen, but I'm not going to it it won't. Let's say your house was on fire and you could only get out one physical thing. What would that thing be? Well, besides my children my wife yes all critters and loved ones are already out dogs Dogs. one thing Mm -hmm.
1: that's a good question um i don't know um i have several guitars um (laughs) boy one if i had to choose one that's tough there's there's three that i'd try to grab first if i could
0: only (laughs) grab one of them
1: (laughs) i don't know it's, there's it's,
0: no there's no wrong answer here man it's just whatever pops in. Your i don't head. know
1: i I've, I've got i've got this froggy bottom it's a small guitar maker in vermont that makes a these guitars i have two of them but one is a, a 12 fret small body guitar that is my absolute favorite to play so it could be that um you know all my fishing rods and stuff are in the in the barn so i don't have to worry about that <laughs>
0: it's on my house <laughs> you got an exemption on that one yeah um
1: uh, yeah. i don't I, you know uh that's that's really it you know what i I look around and i've got artwork and stuff that that you know i like but if it all disappeared tomorrow i'd I'd live with it
0: um i don't know it's funny it's funny you mentioned the the guitar i was just having a friend a a conversation with a friend uh who's older than i and um he's a actually professional musician and it's like, man, I think I want to, you know, as I'm turning 50 here and I'm, I'm probably overdoing it, but I'm thinking, like, I, I got to learn to play the guitar. Like, this has got to happen before, before I check out of here. So oh. I'm, feel, I'm feeling that. The, the, last, no, so, the last, so yeah, go ahead. Let me just talk, make, let me comment on that. So when I was 10,
1: I started playing, I stopped. When I was 13, mm-hmm. I stopped. And 15 in my 20s, I started and stopped. And on my 40th birthday, Nice. I went out and said this is something I've always wanted to do and I went out and bought a guitar nice and started taking lessons and I've played ever since ever since
0: Yeah so Brilliant. it's not it's never too late get out there and I, do it I, I, And and it's you know I just honestly man and it's part about getting being 5 years sober now like mm. music is different it is yeah. it is such a joy it is such an experience it is And that's, that's it. I, you know, certainly not going to have any fame or fortune surrounding my guitar playing skills, but boy, just to be able to play and contribute to the great song. That's kind of what I'm
1: Yeah, no, it's fun. Just this weekend, my friend across, my neighbor across the street, we did a pig roast and I pulled the guitar out afterwards and, you know, played for about an hour and sang. And, uh, it's, it's a blast. That's what I like. I'm I'm a campfire musician. That's what I
0: do. That 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 would be my my greatest ambition. Well, last, very very last, is same vein. Uh, if it, now it's a little more metaphysical. If you could if you could only pull out two things about you, two traits about you, out of that fire and take them with you, what would those traits be that make you you?
1: You know, I gotta. I have a two o'clock with my shrink this afternoon. And I I don't know if I need this <laughs> right now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: maybe it's good prep work come on <laughs>
1: um I, I think it's my ability to maintain uh you know just be open and be receptive to a lot of different things and new things that are out there and never kind of closing off and thinking that that everything's you know everything's good everything's fine and everything's enough it's just being open i think that's why um you know the adhd stuff uh, on one hand, you can say this, and I struggled with it as a kid, but it's also with my superpower. It's it's the reason I am able to do a lot of different things and want to do a lot of different things. It's the reason why I can do TV. I can have restaurants, I can play music, I can fish, I can garden, I can um, uh, you know travel, I can I can do all that stuff except I can't write worth a shit. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and so I don't. I think I am okay with that. I wouldn't change that. I wouldn't say oh, I wish I didn't have it. You know. Uh, but, uh, that's solid. Um, I can, I can live with it now. So yeah.
0: yeah, that's solid. I think I got a touch of it myself. Chef Tom Colicchio, thank you for joining us on a say what you love. Uh, if folks want to get involved with whatever is the most recent on your mind. Where can they check out what you're doing?
1: Oh, I don't know. I don't have like a personal webpage or anything like that. I mean, Twitter and Instagram, um, Instagram more food more fishing stuff Twitter more political commentary and otherwise so I, th- I think that's it I'm Sounds not on
0: good.
1: I'm not on any other I'm not on Facebook I'm not on uh, you know all the other stuff so that's it
0: gotcha man well thank you for your time it's precious and uh, I will get you to Bristol Bay one of these days and we'll for now we'll see you down the trail yeah cool take care thanks how do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thank you for listening to Save What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water, and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.